Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we learn why one business expert thinks we should be having a real conversation in this country about tipping instead of simply leaving it up to businesses to decide. We speak to a former Team Canada boxer about an open letter signed by him and more than 200 other athletes and coaches saying Boxing Canada had cultivated a toxic culture of fear and silence and demanding change. We learn more about the resurrection of the Marcos family in the Philippines, with Ferdinand Marcos Jr. winning the presidency 36 years after his father was driven into exile by a popular revolution against years of corruption and martial law. But first, we look into recent random assaults on public transit, including in Vancouver and Edmonton, and speak to a woman who was repeatedly attacked by a stranger on a bus on a Sunday afternoon, and how she struggled to find help. We begin tonight with safety on public transit following a series of violent assaults in different Canadian cities on board buses and LRTs and such. The Surrey Board of Trade here in BC today asked TransLink, who operate public transit in that region, for more safety measures for women on public transit. That comes after a random assault on a 17-year-old girl on a city bus on April the 1st. Video shows a much larger man punching and kneeing her as she sat at the back of the bus. He's since been arrested. Meantime, in Edmonton last month, a 78-year-old woman was pushed onto LRT tracks in what police have described as a violent and unprovoked assault. And my next guest was on a visit to Edmonton from Vancouver Island with her daughter and was on an Edmonton bus on the afternoon of May the 1st with her sister and daughter when they were repeatedly attacked by a woman they did not know and pretty much left to fend for themselves during the hour-long incident. And Patty Garside joins me now from Courtney on Vancouver Island. Patty, thank you so much for your time tonight. Mm, thank you, Ben. I'm glad that I can join in this evening. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like a like a really scary incident that just sort of happened uh, without without any provocation really how, how did it unfold well it was absolutely shocking i mean we we flew in from vancouver island that you know that day we came in you know with WestJet into edmonton and uh we decided that we were going to take public transit instead of renting a um a car and so we got on to you know the bus and then the lrt and then we were on Another bus, and this woman boarded, and she it was she looked clean cut, well put together. Um, looked like she had a bag of groceries, and she was trying to engage my daughter, and and she was getting in, aggressive in her conversation, talking about her life being hell. She lived in hell. She knew Satan, and then all of a sudden, she just lunged for my daughter, and like at her face, ripping her glasses off and, you know, causing a cut on her face. And then she grabbed my sister. It was, it was terrifying and it happened so quickly. And it continued for quite a while, didn't it? That was the most shocking part. I, I gather that A, it continued for quite a while and B, you weren't getting much help from other passengers either. No, Ben, we, we didn't. I mean, um, you know, she when she went for my sister, and then you know, I I stepped in, got my daughter's glasses back, and the bus driver had pulled over and was telling her to get off the bus, and she 
was not getting off the bus. And I said, you need to get off the bus. And, and then she started attacking me. And nobody else even stood up to say, get off the bus. They pulled out their phones uh, to video what was going on. And I was able to um, wrestle her off the bus as she was attacking me, um, got her off the bus, and the bus driver shut the door. And then we continued on our way to the transit station. And that's where I was, I was told I could file a complaint by phone or go home and file a complaint or a report. Um, but I, I felt that it, you know, I wasn't being a visitor. I had absolutely no idea who to call, what to do. And then we got to the transit station and we're standing there trying to figure out what to do. And there was a male at the transit station who was trying to engage with us and yelling at us, um, saying, you white women with your white power. So we couldn't even go into the transit station at all for any refuge. And then a bus pulled up and uh, four teenage girls got off of this bus screaming and running. And the woman who had assaulted and attacked us on the, on our bus came off of that bus. Like, I don't even know how she was able to get back on another bus. Why, why was there, you know, no, nothing sense saying, Hey, there is somebody, there was assault on the bus be wary of, you know, such and such passenger with a description, but she was able to get onto another bus and assault more people. What happened after? Did you just head home at that point? Well, what happened was that, you know, these girls were screaming and then, then she um, turned to us and started to like chase all of us. And I am not familiar, and I was on I was on the line on my cell phone with the non-emergency uh, police line to uh, file a complaint about you know being assaulted, and um, you know I, it was just I remember screaming into the phone, "We need help! We need help!" And she was chasing us, um, you know, and more and more is coming to me as the days go by. I'm starting to remember things, and and I remember. There was a, I saw that there was a bathroom. I thought, okay, well, I can get us all in there and we can close the door and we'll be safe. But apparently I've been told that that button has been disabled because of overdoses and people sleeping in the bathroom. Right. I, I'm, I'm not too sure I, you know, if that's, that's a true fact or not, but that's what I have been uh, uh, told. So, I mean, we right. had absolutely nowhere to go. <laughs> like it was, You do have... You do eventually, I gather, manage to get away. Um, well, and are, I, you're injured too at this point, right? Well, exactly. I mean, we're still. My daughter was cut on the face. My my sister was shaken up. But the second assault happened. We ran towards uh, another bus that had the doors open. We ran onto that bus. There was nobody else on the bus. So there's myself, my daughter, my sister, and. Um, there was either three or four teenage girls who ran on this bus thinking that there'd be somebody there to help us. There was nobody on the bus. This woman stepped onto the bus still, um, you know, in her, in her mental state. So we stepped off the bus. She went for my daughter. I screamed at her. So she turned and grabbed my sister by the arm and was punching her in the face. So I stepped 
in, you know, to help my sister because nobody else. I mean, there was people walking around and nobody came to our aid. So I got my sister behind me, my daughter behind me. And somehow a, a bus driver appeared and said, come on the bus. So as I was backing up to get onto the bus and she was continuing to assault me, um, you know, right until I got onto the bus and the driver shut the door and then she was banging on the, uh, on the bus. Yeah. I read some, yeah. I mean, it it just sounds like such a horrific hour. Um, I read in an interview that you did that you understood that the woman herself was, was obviously having an episode. She was in bad shape and that you didn't blame her specifically, but you wondered what had happened to a system that would allow someone in so much difficulty just to be wandering around. Well, exactly, Ben. It's, um, you know, it's like what has happened to her and you know, what I saw, what I thought was a bag of groceries actually ended up being a carton of juice and a bottle of alcohol. So, um, I'm almost, I'm also told that people can get on a bus without having to pay. You know, I, I understand, you know, there's vulnerable, there's homeless, there's uh, people that have nowhere else to go. So transit is um, a safe place, what they think, you know, they can be warm, they can be dry. Um, and the transit stations, uh, what, what I'm led to believe is what, what was happening is that these transit shelters were open up for, you know, the vulnerable and the homeless in order to shelter during cold weather. But right. the, the, the solution has now become the problem. And, and it's not necessarily always safe to go into a transit station. I mean, this was the middle of an afternoon on a Sunday. So, so... Patty, has it, has it changed the way, I know you're back here now on Vancouver Island, has it changed the way at all that you feel about riding on public transit? Do you feel safe? Well, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have to have a vehicle. Uh, however, my daughter in Victoria, you know, she, before the pandemic, was, you know, riding the bus often. It was, you know, more cost-effective than, than using a vehicle. And, and she hesitates to get on transit. Um, you know, I, I, I have a sister who lives in New York and I've rode transit there a number of times and I feel safer on a New York transit, uh, system than I do the Edmonton. There was, there was no security around. There was, um, nothing like being a visitor. I didn't know what, I didn't know what to do. (laughs) Patty Garside, I'm glad you're okay. Um, Mm -hmm. I know she was picked up later or at least mm-hmm. uh, apprehended later uh, but yeah. what a story uh, patty thank you so much for sharing it with us tonight i think it's such a cautionary tale just about the troubles that we're seeing that aren't necessarily anybody specific's fault but these are the kinds of things that we're seeing happening uh patty thank you so much for your time tonight i appreciate it okay thank you ben tipping is an interesting topic because depending where you live Tipping is almost something that you need to figure out. So, of course, I lived in the UK. You don't tip in the UK. You can tip at restaurants at times. You don't tip at bars. You're, it's deeply discouraged to tip at pubs. Um, you can buy the bar person a drink, but tipping itself is not encouraged at all. Um, I've lived in Beijing, where tipping is also not customary uh, at all. And other parts of the world where it just isn't done. Like, you just don't tip. People don't tip. 
Um, so when they, people come to Canada, they have to figure out what the rules are around tipping. Uh, I I don't know if you've ever had a friend or someone you knew who you would sneak back into places, into restaurants to see if they'd left enough money because you felt bad because they were customary. It was customary for them not to leave enough money. Maybe you're that friend. Uh, who knows? Um, but we've never really had much of a discussion about it, have we? About why it is that tipping is the way it is. Now, of course, during the pandemic, um, I think a lot of us changed our tipping habits to some extent as well, tip more. Uh, understood that people serving you didn't have the same volume of customers, um, didn't have the same tables or, you know, restaurants were closed or was takeout or uh, whatever. So you were tipping differently or tipping more. Um, but businesses pretty much dictate the tipping game to some extent. And of course, in a world of card machines, that's even more so. Comedian Josh Sunquist has a pretty good take on it. I'm not a big fan of these iPads that the coffee shops have because I will order like a single muffin and hand their credit card and they spin around the iPad and it's like, do you want to leave a tip of 50%, 90%, 110%? And the barista's just looking at the iPad, just like, go ahead. Yeah, I'm watching very carefully, right? Like, have any of you people ever tried to press the no tip button? I love this. This is, this is why it works so well. You're so ashamed you won't even admit it if you pressed it. You're like, oh no, I leave 150% every time. But like, to be clear, baristas, uh, you should be paid a living wage, but include that in the price of my muffin. Like, why am I giving you a bonus? For doing your work, I think he finishes that sentence. That's Josh Sunquist, um, comedian and motivational speaker, talking about something I think we all face when we go to a coffee shop. And now everywhere you go, anytime you buy anything, you're presented with an option, of course, of uh, leaving a tip if you uh, are paying with a card. Uh, did your tipping habits change during the pandemic? Have you changed them back? Let me know. 877-399-9898. 877-399-9898. Well, my next guest says we should really be having a more meaningful discussion about tipping. How we do it, when, how transparent is it, do employees benefit, and so forth. Joining me now is Simon Peck. He's an assistant professor at the Gustafson School of Business at the University of Victoria and author of a recent article, The Future of Tipping Should Be Driven by Canadians, Not Businesses. Simon, thanks so much for your time tonight. It's great to be here with you. What was the inspiration for the piece? Obviously something you've, you've put a, quite a bit of thought into. It's a really detailed and interesting piece that you wrote. Yeah, I've just been interested in the topic uh, for a very long time since I had my first job. And then uh, during the pandemic, it just became something that I came across more and more often. And because I do a lot of research at the nexus of business and sustainability, but it was really interesting just to look at these trends and try to unpack how it might be affecting working life for people in more and more industries in Canada. So what did you find in terms of trends? Because I think you mentioned the gig economy in the article as being particularly an area where we would see tipping become more and more important. Yes. So I would say that um, like over the last few years, we've definitely seen tipping show up in many more new contexts in Canada. So, you know, gig economy is in many ways powered by tipping, even though initially Uber didn't allow the option to tip. Now that's kind of, you know, a mainstay. You see it in more retail settings, like some cannabis dispensaries, some liquor stores, even like streaming platforms like YouTube now have super thanks functions to enable tipping, cafes, fast food, etc. At the same time, though, like because tipping is so contentious, there's still a movement among some businesses like restaurants to try to go against the grain and to eliminate tipping. Do you think that, I mean, I was saying earlier, I've lived in countries where you do not tip. Um, 
it never felt like it changed much. You can tip if you want. Um, do you think that's a good idea to, to sort of try and circumvent it? Or it, what, what should we be doing? Or I guess we should be having a conversation about it is what we should be doing. Yeah, so, so I think there's a lot of different models out there. And you pointed to in the introduction how, you know, this is done differently, you know, in every single country pretty much. So I would say, especially as there's big interest now in, you know, the future of work and making sure workers have good working conditions, good benefits, et cetera, uh, I think we should, you know, look at inspiration about what the various models out there are, what their pros and cons are, and really listen to stakeholders and particularly workers to try to co-design a compensation system that will, you know, meet as many of these needs as possible and then try to collectively implement it to to make work better and avoid some of the confusions that you were mentioning. Because I th- one of the things that stands out in your in your piece is that this is about protecting workers. It's not about taking money away from them. It's about trying to make sure that they that tips aren't what businesses are relying on to pay their staff. I would say that's a major concern for me personally. Like one of the things tipping has a lot of you know some positive consequences and a lot of negative ones. And I would say one of the biggest risks with the spread of tipping is what can be termed externalization, where things that you know employers were traditionally responsible for now become the responsibility of consumers to kind of top up a gig worker to make sure they can make, you know, even enough money to make it through a work day. And so I, I personally think that we should not be going in that direction and should refocus it so that employers take good care of their employees. When you looked at trends during the pandemic, and I noticed that all of a sudden when I was being handed the cash machine, the option of 10% used to disappear, 10 and 15 seemed to disappear to replace by 18 and 20. Uh, was that a significant trend when it came to tipping across the country, sort of the, the increase in tipping? And has it changed back at all or is it too early to tell? From the, late, from the data I was able to see, uh, this was from Square that does a lot of the payment platforms. They did see an increase in tipping percentages overall during the pandemic. And, and obviously, as you mentioned, as you talked about, tipping is just more and more common in more and more contexts. So I would say that Canadians, you know, who are paying any attention to what's going on in terms of what they're buying, which many of us are right now, are definitely seeing tipping, you know, much more frequently. And I haven't seen uh, data saying that there's, you know, been a shift back in some ways. Uh, but one study I found from Dalhousie did find that 20% of Canadians do anticipate tipping more after the pandemic than before the pandemic. And the rest were, were pretty much unchanged. So we still don't really know. Is that a good thing? I mean, you, 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 as you said, there's both good and bad in the tipping, right? I mean, it feels, just as a longtime consumer, it feels like the rules are, are I'm a bit lost now, I have to admit. I'm a bit lost because there used to be sort of the, you, you, you tipped when you sat down, when you were served, you tipped. Uh, when someone brought you a bag at a counter, you didn't necessarily, or you maybe you did if it was the service was excellent or you knew the person or, uh, have those rules have those rules changed as far as you can tell? I would say so for sure. And I think uh, you mentioned this as well before when you mentioned like the role of businesses here. A lot of this is, seems to be just driven by, you know, decisions businesses make or around whether to enable and to prompt tipping. And especially with the rise of payment platforms and, and, and stuff like that, it's so easy just to add that option. And then consumers, you know, just wonder like, well, maybe this is the norm now. Maybe I should do this, right? But it's not happening with a lot of transparency or clear communication. And I personally think at a minimum, there should be a lot more transparency around, you know, what these options are. Maybe there shouldn't be the same amount of nudging coming in there. And we should really know where the money is going and who gets it and, and what their wages might be. But still, I'd say that's a bare minimum. And I think we really have to have the conversation about whether we even want this shift to tipping to, to be happening right now. 
because I always got the impression when there was a tip jar that at the end of the night, they emptied the tip jar, they divvied up the money and they went home. Uh, but when you're paying on a payment platform, it's much harder to, I mean, I don't know where that money's going. I don't know if every business that I tip at gives, you know, portions that out fairly to all its workers, how they do it, uh, what the person in front of me is going to take away from the tip that I leave. You're right. I, I have no idea. Yeah, neither do I. And I think uh, just because it's so new, we really don't know what's going on and what's driving this decision making. And the other interesting thing just on this point is that, you know, we used to have in many Canadian jurisdictions a similar situation to the U.S. where there was a tip minimum wage. Uh, so, you know, that's maybe one reason why people felt that they have to tip in some context. But now in most provinces, it's the same minimum wage for, for most workers. Uh, so there's not that kind of discrepant wage for tip workers. And so the same question kind of arises, you know, if, if most people are making at least minimum wage, then if that reason is gone for tipping, then, you know, how do we make that decision right now? One thing I found that did work when it came to, you know, specifically food service was, was a service charge. It's just added to your bill and you pay it. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a 15% or it's a 10%. It's added to automatically. Um, is that something you think might work? I, I guess culturally it probably wouldn't work here because we're too far down uh, the other road. People would rebel against it, both for and against. Yeah, I think that's one of the tricky things. So getting, you know, it's one thing to design what the perfect situation would look like and another, you know, to create a almost like a collective action to get there. But exactly as you mentioned, one of the things that consumers dislike about service charges is that they feel that it takes away their, their choice and their ability to decide whether or not the service met their needs. So I would say that has a lot of benefits, like being, you know, enables the restaurant, for example, to distribute tips a lot more equitably to back of house, for example. Um, and, and some might say that it's, you know, consumers are still more likely to buy something than they, than they would if it was a service inclusive pricing, which just looks a lot more expensive. But I would say personally, a service charge is, has a lot of benefits for, for most workers um, instead of the current model of tipping and definitely something we should be looking at. Uh, where should we go from here, Simon? What does this look like in, in your perfect world in terms of the next step? Should we, should we have some sort of, um, you know, should we, should we set up something to talk about it? I guess we don't really want the government to get involved and start having, you know, committees and white papers and so on, but it seems like something we should be talking about. I definitely think it's important for, you know, for us to have that conversation. As I mentioned, there's, there's a lot of models out there now that are, that are taking place. So just one, one quick one, like the Ontario Workforce Recovery Advisory Committee is, is one that kind of investigated the future of work in Ontario. Tons of research, stakeholder conversations, and that's one model to really unpack this in depth, do the research where it's needed, and then come up with solid recommendations. Or another one uh, is, is a forthcoming Ontario Assembly on Work-Based Democracy that uses kind of a citizens panel model where we, you know, give a representative group of Canadians the chance to learn about the topic in depth with no real kind of skin in the game and come up with solutions that way. And I think models like that where we can really like take the time to work through this, make sense of it together, could be a really good way to get there instead of having kind of one-off conversations with each other and not really pushing that forward to try to solve the problem. Simon, a fascinating topic, uh, one we'll probably be talking about for quite, for quite a while. I've been thinking about it all day, to be honest. So thanks so much for your time tonight. Uh, that's great. Thanks for having me. 
We spent the last hour in the political ring. We'll spend this half hour in the boxing ring. More than 100 Canadian boxers are calling for the resignation of Boxing Canada's high performance director and an independent investigation into the sports culture and safe sport practice. At last check, that letter uh, was up to 220 signatories. Uh, it was sent last week. Athletes said Boxing Canada has cultivated a, to- a quote, toxic culture of fear and silence and asked the organization to address four main issues governance and transparency safety, toxic culture and harassment, and restricting opportunities. Following gymnastics and bobsleigh and skeleton, boxers are the latest athletes to break their silence and make an open call for action to improve the culture of their sport, and in particular, the body that runs it in this country. Well, joining me now is Brian Caldwell. He's a champion, boxing champion in this country, who represented Canada in the 2019 Pan Am Games in Lima in the men's 91 kilo class, losing to the eventual gold medalist, and one of now 200 plus athletes and coaches who signed the open letter to Boxing Canada. Brian, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It's great to have an opportunity to kind of get the story out there. Absolutely. I mean, your story in of itself is fascinating because not many boxers started off dreaming of becoming soccer players. Uh, uh, yeah. But that was sort of that's your background, right? You sort of were were training to try out for the UVix men's soccer team and found boxing. Yeah, that was yeah, it was one of those things. Kind of stumbled backwards into it, but it was also like that's what everybody loves to talk about. But that was. Uh, it was funny because I had spent like, you know, 15 plus years playing soccer. And on my very first night at boxing, I knew that I never wanted to play ever again. I knew I'd bounce what I really wanted to do. So that was, you know, after 15 years of like, hey, mom, driving me all over the country to soccer. Now I want to get punched in the face for a living. Thank you. <laughs> Brian, what did you like about it? What was what was so magical about it? The moment you stepped in, you knew that was that. Um. To be honest, it was it was the one-on-one nature of it. It was like the immediate, it's just you versus them. Like team sports are fun, but one-on-one sports, especially like boxing, it's it's um, athleticism and all those things kind of play a part, but there's also just it's will versus will, and we see that play out all the time in the ring. Um, how much the men, it's not like people talk about the mental game, but it's not just the mental game. It's also just force of will. And I was just immediately drawn to it because it's, it's also just so much fun. It's fun to fight. Uh, and it all just worked for me on my very first day in the gym. And I've only, I've never really looked back. Well, you were good at it. That also helps, right? <laughs> a great deal. I have to say that to that as well. Uh, what, how, what was success like early on? Because I know, I know that you won the Golden Gloves in both Oregon and here, which is very rare. Uh, but you had a lot of success early on. What was it like to sort of find success in the ring? Um, it was very interesting because at the time when I first started, I first ha- started having success was in the kind of uh, affliction and tap out era when the UFC first started to become big and mainstream. So everybody was a tough guy and everybody was a fighter. But then there was me who was really doing, you know, I was winning provincial championships. I was winning golden gloves. So success at first was a bit of a, a whirlwind, but um, it also became I don't know, like the the journey of climbing to the top. The great thing about boxing is you always know what the next step is, right? So success just kind of became more about just training and always being in the gym. Because as long as you were always in the gym, you always knew when the next fight was. You knew where the next step was. So it became just routine and habit. And winning just always led to the the next step. You always knew it was next, the next challenge ahead. So when does Team Canada? come calling when do things like the pan am games and the olympic games start to be something you start to think about uh to be honest it 
Winning uh, when I went, I went to I won nationals my very first time going, which is very very rare. Normally, um, even in our country, you'd see uh, it's your second or third trip to nationals. So, um, all of that kind of became really real when I won that first national championship. And not only did I win it, but I won it by spectacular knockout in the second round. It's the clip that everybody yeah. sees when they search me on YouTube, right? Yeah, I, I watched so, I watched it a few hours ago. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, yeah right? A, yeah. So it, it was, yeah. it, it, was it, it kind of went off just like that. Like it just, it went from, I was just going to nationals and I was just going to really go and have my first one there and just have a great experience. And then I won my first fight and then I won my second fight. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be top two in the country. Well, like, that's just such an accomplishment of its own. And then, you know, I'm in the middle of the ring and halfway through the second round, all of a sudden I'm national champion. And then a few days later, I'm finding out that it's time to move to Montreal and centralize with the program because... The Olympics is four years away, and there was the Commonwealth Games coming in Pan Ams and everything like that. And it just it was one of those things. Once the ball started rolling, it just kind of my feet just kept moving for about two years. So we get to Montreal, and I think this is where things start to get start to change a bit, right? I mean, you love the sport; you're very good at it. You arrive at the team at with Team Canada to train in Montreal, where they're where they're located. You obviously have big expectations and big hopes. I would imagine at that point, how do things? play out so to speak well it was it was very unfortunate right i mean every athlete's dream or within my sport one of the you'd think is to represent your country you know it's um it's definitely a milestone it's a huge thing and it's it's a big honor in most sports and it's a big it's a target for a lot of athletes so what i saw it as was like making the national team was basically was getting paid to represent your country like you know become a gift you become a carded athlete and you get centralized you're training with the best people our country has to offer and you get to go and you get to test yourself against the very best and then um so it's very very excited to go it was you know all your dreams come true like uh so but then it moved out here and it just the program didn't live up to any of the promises that we were kind of told from the outset and then i mean I can go into all kinds of details of the problems I experienced and the athletes around me did. Uh, we all just experienced it differently. But the the big problem that I saw it as when once I got there was that the program was openly modeled after other countries. Like they just kept telling us that our program worked because it was modeled after the top ten meddling countries over the last fifty years of the Olympics which never made sense to me because we are not those 10 countries. Canada is a very different nation than those other 10 countries, and we have a different sport along with it. So it just uh, I only ended up spending a year there before I had to come back, but it was, it, was a, it was a very quick turnaround within a month of getting there that just the program wasn't what it had been explained to us that it would be. I noticed that there were some things that you mentioned in an interview that I was reading just about being asked to go fight on very short notice, just essentially that you didn't feel like they were looking out for you. You didn't feel like you were being uh, tutored or mentored or progressed in many ways. Uh, Not at all. Um, For example, my story is, so I got sent to Bulgaria on two days notice, and that was my only opportunity to compete the whole year. And the only reason I even got that opportunity to go to Bulgaria was because originally the Bulgaria trip was supposed to be an all-girls trip. I think we had five athletes going, maybe six. 
And um, in the, the last sparring before heading out, one of the female athletes got a concussion. So for what I was what was explained to me, it was basically Team Canada and attempting to salvage their plane ticket and their registration and everything like that. I was subbed in uh, last minute. But then, as I explained in the, in the interview, I was never told about that. And two days before I was supposed to fly out, I got a call from... Uh, basically the team accountant basically uh, confirming my flight time and that it, that would work for me and everything like that. Um, to which I was wondering, like, what are you talking about? And they're like, you're going to Bulgaria, don't you know? It was like, nope. So um, just, and that's, was just one of many things. Like even in the day-to-day training, there's just, there was favoritism thrown around in terms of uh, what time sparring was at. Like my training was never at peak times. There was never anybody in the gym with me. And um, those kind of things don't set you up for a good place mentally to begin with. And then um, on the trip to Bulgaria was also the, originally the trip was billed to the girls. It was just going to be this little tune-up tournament. And when we got there, it turned out to not be a tune-up tournament. It was actually like a mini world championships like there was a lot of high level teams there, so it was the whole it was, the whole experience was just like it was it was it was also awesome though because I got to go and compete against the best in the world and rub shoulders with them. But uh, <clears throat> that was just kind of the final nail in the coffin, and um, found really difficult to come back to training when you come back from experience like that. What what I mean, what I didn't get is that uh, you know you're Canadian champion at this point. Uh, you obviously have some real skill. I watched that fight at the Pan Am Games with uh, with with Felix Savon's uh, nephew, whose name I'm going to forget now. I apologize. Eris Landry Savon, be- yeah, that, that yeah, guy one of the best boxers good. in the world, right? He's one of the best yeah. in his weight class in the world, and you stood toe to toe with him for three for three full rounds and had a good fight. I mean, you had a, I mean, you were you were going. I mean, I, I, as a as a Team Canada fan, it would have been nice to see you compete, and I wonder why that wasn't recognized. Well, it's also like, that's the thing is like, in my opinion, I was never properly tutored or mentored. Like that was my 40th four zero fight when I fought uh, the Cuban. And that was his, we're guessing 450th because like they have so many fights that it's difficult to, you know, keep track of them all. But like, that's one of the things is that was, I'd been on the team for two years then. And I think I'd had like, uh, pardon me for the, I fought the Cuban at the Pan Am qualifiers. And then, That's right. um, I had no fights between the Pan Am qualifiers and the Pan Am games when I fought him for the second time, whereas he, as the Cuban national team, I think he had like three or four fights. So when you just look at that difference, like I'm not getting the fights of the experience and yet I have back-to-back fights with the number one ranked fighter in the world. And there's supposed to be some expectation I'm going to do immediately better, which I didn't understand. I'm speaking with Brian Caldwell, a Canadian champion, Golden Gloves uh, champion, a 2019 Lima Pan Am Games uh, competitor. Uh, we're talking about an open letter that uh, more than 200 boxers and coaches have now signed, demanding changes at Boxing Canada, calling uh, what they've cultivated there a culture of toxic of toxicity and fear and silence. We'll talk a bit more about the open letter and what you hope to achieve and what you've seen so far in the reaction after this. I'm speaking this half hour with Brian Caldwell, a Canadian champion, boxing champion, uh, as well as having represented Canada at the Pan Am Games in Lima in 2019. Uh, we're talking about an open letter signed by now more than 220 athletes and coaches in boxing, uh, originally signed by 100 or more, uh, calling for changes at Boxing Canada. And I wanted to ask you about that letter, uh, uh, Brian. Was it a tough decision to make? And uh, what made you decide that it was it was something that you thought you should be involved with? 
Um, it was not a difficult decision. Um, that open letter is the product of a few years of work. There's actually been three different opportunities. There's been three different times over the past uh, two and a half years where I've been asked to submit official um, complaints or you know <clears throat> testimonies of what happened, my treatment of Boxing Canada over the last couple of years because. Um, there's actually the female athlete representative, Caitlin Clark. She um, she started addressing these problems, all the ones that are listed in the letter. Um, and I have to give big respect to Caitlin Clark because she went through and she followed the steps. She did like the in-the-trenches busy work of compiling stories and going through the proper appeal process and everything. And after the third one was just... Um, we we all just kind of ran out of steam. And then what kind of blew the top off of it was um, Mandy Bujold kind of came out and she kind of committed her name to it after uh, it was about a week and a half ago. And it just got, she created an Instagram post and it's then all the people, I want to say over the last few years, they, there's always been people who have been battling with um, Boxing Canada and they all just kind of came together and it went really, really quickly. It went from just an Instagram post to Mandy Bujold got an interview with CTV to it got the media traction to the open letter was created. And I mean, I signed it the minute that I found out about it because we had current champions. We had Marie Spencer, a two-time for a uh, two-time professional world champion. He used to be on Boxing Canada. We had all of a sudden, it was just kind of like once it hit the mainstream kind of news, um, all of the all of the bolts just fall off, fell off, and we've, we've like all of the little secrets in Boxing Canada's closet. Like going back as far as there was a third party study done of the Boxing Canada program back in 2014, which right. listed all the problems that needed to be fixed back then that still haven't been addressed. And so, to answer your question, it was really easy. And the thing was, once. Um, once, once it got rolling, and, and like 221 athletes signed this that have experienced it in boxing, get like that's how bad and widespread it was. So for me, it was not a difficult decision. It was really, if anything, it was vindicating to see um, the process finally work and see the change might actually be coming after two and a half years of risking my reputation by going through the official proper process. Sunlight, as they always say, is a great disinfectant. Are you happy with the, Are you happy with with what you've seen so far in terms of reaction? Do you think this will lead to some real change? I'm I'm really really excited with what we've seen so far with uh, the high performance director stepping down, and then also with um, a few of the bigger names I mentioned, like Mandy Bujold and Marie Spencer. They've really got a, they've been nav- navigating and handling this well because at the end of the day, it wasn't just the high performance director. It was again there was a, re- a third party report commissioned in 2014. Who are all the people that turned a blind eye to his actions? Who are all the people who helped? And I mean from coaches to um athlete representatives to the board like i believe another one of the stipulations added in there is there's an immediate vote of no confidence in the board of directors of boxing canada the whole program is going to be um switched from the bottom up you know so i'm really excited to see what comes next you know um i'm hoping more transparent better opportunities more transparent uh, more clear about opportunities less toxic uh there was a lot of demands in there and it feels like they're being listened to absolutely and the thing is it's um it's in a position where i'm very very hopeful 
that a program will be built, as I've said before, that reflects the diversity of Canadian culture, that isn't controlled by any just one person, because we've got a very big geographic country. The West Coast is different than the East Coast, is different than Ontario, is different than Quebec, is different than the prairies. And I just hope we rebuild. We start with a program that isn't modeled after other countries, but it's modeled after one that reflects the Canadian sport and the Canadian culture. Brian, I only have about a minute left, but I wanted to ask you what you're up to these days. I think listeners will want to know what you're up to and, and uh, you know, have you, have you found a place where you're happy and doing stuff that you like? I am. Um, I'm boxing with my new coach, Richard Lestage, from the Stage Boxing up in Parksville. I'm back in Victoria. I work for, like, I teach boxing full-time. Uh, when people want to know what's next, it's just uh, I'm in a weird place between with his Boxing Canada program turning around. Do I stay amateur? Do I turn pro? All I know is that I'll be back in the gym tomorrow and I just look forward to continuing to box, whether it be with Boxing BC, whether it be with Boxing Canada, or uh, whatever me and my coach, which is on the stage, decide to come next. Brian Caldwell, thank you so much for your time. A fascinating conversation. Thanks for, uh, for sharing your story with us and for sharing your reasons behind signing that letter. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Well, familiar name is back in power in the Philippines. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., better known as Bong Bong, son of the late Philippine dictator of the same name, Ferdinand Marcos, is headed for election victory. He will become the country's next president, 36 years after protesters drove his father from office and into exile. Here is Marcos Jr. addressing the nation. I want to thank you for all that you have done for us. There are thousands of you out there, volunteers, parallel groups, political leaders that have uh, cast their lot with us uh, because of their belief in uh, our message of uh, unity, because of their belief. That is Ferdinand Marcos Jr., president-elect, it would seem, of the Philippines tonight. He appears to have an, or had an insurmountable lead at last look over his main rival, current vice president, Lenny Robredo. Uh, she actually defeated Marcos for that vice presidency back in 2017, so you can see some names reoccurring in power. Marcos will succeed Rodrigo Duterte, whose daughter Sarah was elected separately as vice president. Uh, so you have two famous names now at the top, a Marcos and a Duterte. All this, as I mentioned, 36 years after his father and the family, including wife Imelda, who was famous for that vast shoe collection, were driven into exile by the People Power Revolution. Well, he ruled, uh, Ferdinand Marcos ruled from 65 to 86, and under martial law from 72 until 81, he kept most of that martial law in power until he was disposed again in 1986. It is a very fascinating story in an always fascinating country when it comes to politics. And joining me now to discuss it is Lenora Angeles. She's a professor with expertise in the Philippines at UBC uh, and its politics, and who's also served as an election monitor at the Philippines Consulate in Vancouver on Monday. Lenora, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation. It is always fascinating uh, to watch Filipino politics from a distance. Um, the return of Marcos to the uninitiated seems like quite the resurrection, 36 years for those of us who remember 1986. Uh, what was his pitch in this election that allowed him to win? There are a number of promises that uh, the Marcos uh, Duterte uh, gave to the Filipino people with this election. One, of course, is uh, unity, uh, which is, of course, uh, rather strange because they're the most divisive uh, personalities uh, in Philippine politics today. 
And uh, there's also, of course, the promise of uh, basic uh, reforms, uh, you know, the usual that you hear from uh, politicians, uh, ending corruption, uh, ending poverty, uh, livelihoods, uh, jobs, uh, continuation of the labor migration policy to ensure that Filipinos will have access to uh, work abroad. Uh, there's also promise to, uh, you know, uh, continue the, the, the war on drugs, which was, of course, uh, the main uh, platform that uh, President Rodrigo Duterte uh, uh, rode on in the 19, uh, 2016 uh, national election. So there is really that continuation of uh, the Duterte uh, uh, government uh, policies through uh, his daughter, uh, Sarah, who, who won right. uh, the vice presidency. The opposition tried to mount uh, something here. I know there was a lot of push specifically within Manila, I gather, but it didn't work. I mean, this was quite a, a resounding victory for, uh, for Rodrigo, for, for, uh, for Junior. Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, there are, of course, uh, ongoing uh, protests still uh, coming from uh, the opposition, uh, from the supporters of uh, Vice President Lenin Robredo, who I would say really uh, run on uh, good governance uh, and transparency and grassroots uh, volunteerism. Uh, campaign, uh, I still think that she's the best candidate of all. Uh, but politics, we have to remember, it's a game of numbers. You know, sadly, it's not about the quality of candidates, um, but the quantity of votes that they receive during elections that matter. And I think we really need to get at the roots of why uh, the Marcus and the Duterte team uh, received the uh, most number of votes. Uh, this is, of course, uh, you know, despite, you know, allegations of disenfranchisement of uh, uh, many people, uh, vote buying, and other irregularities that are being documented by, by the opposition. But generally, there is a feeling that um, the fears of the opposition have really become a reality since uh, the Marcus and the Duterte uh, political dynasties teamed up together, supported, of course, by uh, former President Joseph Estrada and right. uh, former President uh, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo. So it's it's really you know this this four political dynasties um, that were powerful enough to uh, garner the most number of votes uh, from the three geographic regions of the Philippines, Luzon, uh, the northern Luzon in particular, where the Marcuses come from, uh, the right. Visayas, where the Mar Mar Marcuses, Romualdez Marcuses were strong, and uh, of course the Dutertes in the Visayas in Mindanao. <laughs> I guess from an outsider's point of view, when you look at this and you hear that a Marcos has campaigned on, you know, anti-corruption, on eradicating poverty and, and, and unifying, and you think back to his father, uh, it's how, how did the Marcos name get resurrected or at least get 
get cleansed in Filipino in the Filipino no in the Filipino mind, so to speak? Well, three things: money, machinery, and social media. Money, wow, of okay. course, uh, leads mm-hmm. to uh, it. It used to be guns. Uh, Goons and gold, you know, there's still that right. element, but it, it, and of course, the you know, the promise of gold, uh, and uh, that was circulating in social media, which to some people are really laughable, you know, that uh, there's so much gold in the markets that they'll use to repay, um, uh, the Philippine debt, for instance. But it's right. really about promises that are often hard to believe and too good to be true. That unfortunately, um, many Filipinos. Uh, uh, believed uh, because of the social media news feeds that they get on a daily basis from uh, Facebook in particular. You see, Filipinos are among the world's uh, um, highest users of of social media. It comes free whenever they get their, uh, um, their phones, their cell phones. And they don't have to uh, to pay for, uh, you know, Facebook and Messenger um, being installed uh, on their phones. It automatically comes with the service. But they don't have the money, unfortunately, to check the veracity, the credibility of the sources of information, because that would mean uh, having an access to the Internet and, and you know, check facts. So there's a lot of lies and disinformation uh, on the one hand to uh, uh, project a positive images of the Marcuses, um, you know, essentially revise uh, Philippine martial law history and that erasure of uh, the Marcuses um, uh, past since, if you uh, will call it uh, that. Uh, the certainly the ill-gotten wealth, the uh, extravagance, the excesses of of the regime, particularly under martial law, uh, the massive violations of uh, you know human rights. A lot of uh, um, activists during that period, uh, you know, uh, were disappeared, or got tortured, and. Uh, Assassinations, uh, I remember. Illegally, <laughs> right? So yeah. there's a lot of that that, that happened. Yeah. Plus, the disinformation and lies to tarnish the opposition, particularly uh, uh, Vice President Lenny Robredo. So right. they erase basically uh, her credentials, little uh, uh, her intelligence, um, and of course, um, uh, erase her public record as a civil servant or, or discredit that record. So and it's only those who really do a lot of careful fact-checking um, and who can do their independent search on the Internet. Many people on the opposition camp don't realize that there's that big factor. People cannot access, uh, use their own critical thinking faculties to... Uh, verify the information that's being fed uh, to them by uh, pro-Marcus forces. 
and proletarian well, seems, forces as well. Yeah, it, seem, it seems like quite the rewriting of history in a short period of time. We'll take a very short break. I'm speaking with Lenora Angelis. She's a professor at UBC uh, with expertise in the Philippines and its politics. Um, we're talking about the victory of, uh, of uh, Marcos Jr., uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. You may remember his father, who he and his wife, uh, Amelda, uh, her of the shoes. I always remember that shoe story. I was, I was a teenager, so that really stood out to me. Uh, but certainly Ferdinand Marcos was one of the more uh, notorious uh, despots of the, uh, of the later 20th century. His son is now president of, uh, or president-elect of the Philippines. We'll talk a bit about what that means for the Philippines going forward uh, after this. We're talking about the Philippines uh, this half hour and a return to power for a familiar name, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., son of Ferdinand Marcos, who you may remember uh, was essentially kicked out of power, exiled back in 1986 alongside with his wife Imelda and family uh, after a popular uprising against years of corruption and martial law. Well, now his son is the president-elect of the Philippines. And I've been speaking with uh, Lenora Angelis, a professor at UBC, about how that uh, resurrection came to be and how the past has been rewritten in some ways to uh, shine a more positive light on the Marcos years. Um, Lenora, th th there certainly are some issues at hand in the Philippines now that are still uh, very challenging, uh, including, uh, you know, there's still the insurrection in the South. There's there's obviously economic issues after COVID. There's a rebuild going on. Uh, lots of stuff to worry about. Um, is Bong Bong, as he's known, up to the task of running the country? <laughs> well, he has uh, been senator for... Um some time now, and of course the popularity of the Marcus name is still there. Um, I am convinced, Ben, that um, the role of uh, social media and and I'd say algorithmic injustice, as we call it in, in academia, right. when Bongbong Marcos lost uh, to Lenny Robredo as vice president in 2016, he knew he had to work harder. And that's when the family asked Cambridge Analytica. You know the same outfit, uh, yes, I believe, based in Victoria, if, if you recall, uh, <laughs> that helped uh, catapult uh, Donald Trump to, to power. Um, they were approached by uh, the Marcus family to help uh, uh, basically uh, dust up, um, refurbish the, the, the Marcus name. And um, es essentially, uh, let Filipinos forget uh, this historical amnesia uh, that, that, that happened, especially among those uh, who don't have uh, clear memories of martial law anymore. Uh, yeah. And there's practically several generations already. Yeah, since, I was, was going to uh, say, I mean, the Philippines, Philippines, Philippines is still a young country. A lot of people who voted uh, yesterday won't have been really won't have been around for the uh, for the Marcos years. I imagine a lot of them. Exactly, and there's also older generations of people. I would say who have remained Marcos loyalists. I mean, that's the term that um, you know we have uh, used during the the post Marcos period, who uh, were of course uh, against all you know the the post Marcos. Uh, liberal democratic governments uh, that happened from Aquino one to to Aquino two. Um, you ask on whether he's up to task. I would say com compared to to um, Vice President Lenny Robredo, who had 
experience in all three levels of the government, the judiciary, the legislative and executive power. Uh, Bongbong Marcos is uh, not a lawyer. There is, of course, uh, you know, claims that uh, he didn't even finish um, his uh, alleged master's degree uh, at, at, at Wharton and, of course, his bachelor's degree in, uh, at Oxford. Uh, he just simply got a diploma. Um, there is certainly, um, you know, some experience being an executive of uh, Ilocos. Uh, he was uh, governor and, 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 of course, as a legislator, as congressperson, eventually senator. Um, but his performance by all independent observers had been rather uh, lackluster. Uh, the bills he sponsored were not uh, really as weighty as some of the, you know, big shot senators that we have seen in the Philippines. And so he did not attend uh, any major debate uh, with uh, the other candidates yeah. who um, put themselves out there to be assessed by the Filipino people for their ability to uh, think on their feet and defend their agenda. And I think he was advised, apparently, by Cambridge Analytica uh, not to appear because that will expose uh, his uh, inability to to ask answer questions and address um, you know uh, immediate uh, questions about his uh, legacy about uh, uh, the the Marcus's past and every time uh, he speaks in public um, his um, ratings in the polls drop and so that's the main reason why the this very strategic, uh, you know, crafting of the Marcus uh, persona um, really, in a way, uh, hid his weaknesses to the general public. He Nora could Angeles, not. I, even I'm almost out of time here. I apologize. I apologize for for this. We're almost out of time. So thank you so much for the insight into Ferdinand Marcos Jr. I guess we're going to see how he performs over the next five years or so. And I'd love to have you back on. We can talk about this in a few more months to see where he's at. Uh, Lenore Angeles, thank you so much for your time tonight. Sure, Ben. Anytime. Take care.